Hello, I'm Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and I'm your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. I will be your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Today, we will discuss in radon, the impact of this gas on lung cancer diagnosis, new research covering radon, and strategies to improve our patients in general population exposure to this radioactive gas. It is my pleasure to introduce our guests for this episode. First, we have Dr. Hina Khan, She's a thoracic medical oncologist at the Lifespan Cancer Center at Brown University and an assistant professor of medicine. She's a clinical and translational researcher, and one of her research focuses uh, has been studying the burden of radon exposure and his genomic imprints on lung cancer. Welcome, Dr. Ken. Thank you for having me here, Dr. Flores. Thank you, Dr. Ken. We're also fortunate to have Dr. Laura Mesquita, a medical oncology and clinician scientist at the Hospital Clinic of Barcelona and an adjunct professor of medicine at Universitat de Barcelona. Her research includes translational genomics in cancer and molecular epidemiology based on lung cancer risk factors, carcinogens, and predisposition. She also focuses on radon-induced tumors and their relationship to genomic profiles. Welcome, Dr. Mesquita. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with both of you today. So Dr. Ken, Dr. Mesquita, and I know each other, so we're going to be referring to each other by first name during the conversation. So let's talk radon. This brings some memories to me from organic chemistry and pre-medicine, if I need to be honest with you. Radon, or RN222, is a radioactive gas found in rocks and soils. This gas is capable of damaging respiratory epithelium via the emission of alpha particles. Hina. Where are patients more at risk to be exposed to radon? For example, construction workers, are they a higher risk than the general population? Majority of the general population is exposed inside their homes. So homes built in geographical areas that are known to have high radon levels or homes built on areas that used to be mines or mills. They are predominantly the patient population that are exposed to. However, from an occupational perspective, miners, uranium, coal, silver miners, and underground pipeline workers, people who work under the ground, are, are at higher risk of prolonged exposure to radon. So specifically, is there a part of the house when you're at higher risk to be exposed to radon? Yes, higher levels are seen closer to the ground. As you mentioned earlier, a radon is found in rocks and soils. So, and its exposure is predominantly through inhaling air that has higher levels of radon, but it's released from soil, water, and building materials. So people who have well water supplies have higher exposures. People living below the ground level, like in basements or underground apartments, have higher exposures. Thank you for explaining that to me, Hina. You know, living in, I was living in the Midwest in the past, and you know, when there's Midwest winters, you tend to spend a lot of time in that basement. So I was always wondering about that. Lara, in Europe, who are and where are the people at the highest risk for radon exposure? Well, in Europe, in the U.S. and in the rest of the world, 
is a public health problem. But the main risk for radon is the indoor radon inside homes for the general population. So as you know, radon, the indoor radon is the leading cause of lung cancer in non-smokers. And in Europe, it's really prevalent, but is completely unknown for the majority of the citizens. So we have several radon-prone areas, mainly the granitic and volcanic areas in Portugal, in Spain, my country, in France, in Belgium, in Italy, in Switzerland, in Czech Republic, etc. As in US, in Europe, we have this European in the radon map where we can see the estimation of the radon risk exposure by area. So in general, more than 30% of the territory in Europe have a median concentration superior to the WHO recommendation. And 4% of the homes are exposed to high radon levels. Today, the main evidence of radon came from European pooling study. So it's on 13 European case control studies demonstrated this in the radon increased the risk of lung cancer of 16% for each 100 becquerels per cubic meter. So there is a right now a commitment between the WHO and the European Commission to increase the knowledge in the general population about the risk of radon in our homes. Indeed, in the latest update of the European Code Against Cancer, includes in the point nine, mess of radon in your home. And if you have radon in your home, take measures to reduce the risk of radon. So it's one of the 12 ways of prevention cancer that are in our mind. Thank you so much, Lara. And that's a very comprehensive review of the entire continent. So I really appreciate it. Like I'm learning so much and we are not even 10% into the podcast. So one of the questions that I wonder is, how do we start in associating radon with lung cancer? Hina, can you discuss with us some of this earlier research in this area? Some of the earlier data that linked radon and lung cancer was studies from underground uranium miners back in the 1900s in Germany. And it wasn't until the 1980s when the relationship was studied deeply. The Wismut cohort of German uranium miners uh, looked at the radon exposures in miners employed by the Wismut company from 1940s to the 1990s. And they found a linear relationship between radon exposure and lung cancer. Similarly, in the United States, uranium miners in the Navajo Nation found a similar trend of increased lung cancer risks with the radon exposure. And one of the largest studies from the United States was by Lubin and colleagues that was published in JNCI in 1995. And it pooled data from about 11 cohorts of radon exposed underground miners. And in this study, we saw about a 40% of all lung cancer deaths were attributable to radon exposure. In the general population, it wasn't until the early 2000s when data started accumulating. One of the largest European studies was by Darby and colleagues published in 2005. And it was a pooled analysis from 13 case control studies, again, showed a linear relationship between the amount of radon detected inside homes, and the risk of cancer. It showed a statistical increase of 16% of lung cancer risk per 100 becquerels per meter cubes of indoor radon levels. 
In the United States, the IOVA study in 2000 looked at patients from 1993 to 1997. Predominantly, these were female IOVA residents who had occupied their current homes for at least 20 years. And for all lung cancer subtypes, there was a positive categorical trend towards prolonged radon exposure. So clearly with these studies, we noted that not only in the higher risk population, the minors, but also in the general population, in patients who lived in areas that are known to have high radon levels in the ground, had increased risk of lung cancer. And in the United States, radon is measured in picocurie per liter of air, just as in Europe, it is Baccarils per cubic meter of air. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA in the United States, recommends that radon levels should be less than four picocurie per liter, which is equivalent to 150 Baccarils per meter cube in the alternative units. So anything above four picocurie per liter is recommended to be tested and mitigated. And the EPA provides a national maps of state-by-state maps and counties and, and city maps, which highlight areas that are known to have high ground radon levels. So patients can look up and, and find out more about that. Well, I didn't know that. So I'm going to be looking at my place right away as soon as we finish recording about the levels of radon. And this question is to the two of you. So what are the consequences that we're using different measuring in Europe and the U.S.? Lara, how was the association between radon and lung cancer discovered? So as Hina said, it was uh, firstly from minors, but based on this was the first consideration of radon as carcinogen of group one, which means that it's sure that can induce cancer in humans. Based on this evidence, then was studied in the general population with all the study that Hina said before. But the interesting thing is that high radon levels inside homes and buildings has been associated with an increase on the AB, of the AB incidence, but also the mortality of lung cancer in several epidemiological case control studies. So the good thing is that all these studies has been compiled in different meta-analyses, pooling studies. It's really well known in Europe, the European pooling study, the American pooling study, and also in China, pooling study confinement the risk for the general population. Thank you, Lara. So it's great to hear that, you know, this has been studied across the continent and that all the data, you know, points that there is no a safe level for this gas in the direct association with lung cancer. So, you know, the pandemic, many of us stay at home for a long time and still now. So what is the risk, Hina, of the radon exposure in homes? The risk associated with exposures, you know, at home remains kind of uncertain and it continues to face conflicted data. Can you help me and help our listeners understand what is the data showing regarding radon at home? So exposure at home, there are several factors that come into play. You know, first is your indoor levels for which you can look up your state radon societies and actually get uh, do at home tests or buy them in the market to test radon levels in your homes. And a level more than four, as we mentioned, is, is harmful for your health, particularly with the lung cancer risk. 
So one is the concentration level of exposure. A two, as you mentioned, is the duration of indoor exposure. So number of hours per day, years of lifetime. There have been studies that have shown that people who have lived in a basement most of their life were exposed to higher levels of radon compared to those that lived on a first or second floor. Smoking history adds into the risk of radon exposure and the, the correlation with lung cancer. And then, as I mentioned, time spent below ground parts of the house, having well water in the house that increases radon. So these are all factors that come into play. And as it stands, we know that lung cancer, unfortunately, is the number one cause of cancer deaths in both men and women in the United States. And after cigarette smoking, radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer in the United States. In the non-smokers, it is the leading cause of lung cancer. In the United States, it is estimated that 6 million homes have radon levels above the, the EPA-recommended levels. So about 6 million homes, which falls to about one in every 15 homes in the United States, has elevated radon levels. So it's very important that we spread awareness and understanding within the general population on what they can do to find out if they are exposed to high radon, and then if it is, what they can do to prevent further exposure. Thank you for explaining that to us. I think, you know, to me and the general population, the data can be, can be confusing. So, Lara, we love that you're here with us so you can provide the European perspective. What are the regulatory needs in Europe when it comes to radon? Well, in Europe, with all these radon-prone areas, with radon as a prevalent risk factor, it's still a silent risk factor. But we have some data. So the European Commission um, said that radon is responsible for 20,000 lung cancer deaths in the European Union each year. So this is about 9% of the total lung cancer death in Europe and around 2% of all the cancer deaths. So the WHO recommend these radon levels of less than 100 becquerels per cubic meter from these studies of the risk of 16% of lung cancer risk for each 100 becquerels. However, in Europe, the directive we have um, from the European Commission and no regulatory directive of not to exceed 300 becquerels per cubic meter, which is superior to the WHO recommendation, probably because it's really prevalent in our continent. However, the regulatory policies are really different between countries because it's different from U.S., and it's responsibility of each country, the transposition, you know, the process of incorporating the direct directive international law of the countries. So across Europe, there are countries with radon uh, national plans currently working with different threshold, 200 becquerels per cubic meter, 300 becquerels per cubic meter. But in the case of Spain, for example, the national plan, it's a pity, but it's a still a draft. So in Spain, there is still no regulation. Thank you so much, Lara. I think, you know, things are evolving over time. And, you know, I'm from Latin America. And I think that the talk about radon has just started in Latin America. And we have a quite way to go. A question that I always, you know, cross my mind is, this is to the two of you. Have we seen a synergic effect or additive effect between radon exposure and tobacco use? I will start with Hina. 
Yes, I think there is an additive effect and possibly a synergistic effect. You know, just looking at the numbers, the risk of lung cancer from radon exposure is estimated to be at least 10 to 20 times greater in people who have smoked cigarettes in the past compared to those that haven't. And, you know, the the risk of developing a lung cancer to someone who has had a lifetime exposure of radon at four picocurie per liter is seven in a thousand exposed never smokers, and it's 62 in a thousand exposed smokers. So that number you see has gone up, you know, significantly from seven in a thousand to the never smokers to 62 in the cigarette smokers. So it's certainly there is an additive effect and perhaps more until we understand the pathogenesis and the biology of these radon-induced lung cancers, we can perhaps understand more about what this synergistic effect might be. Thank you, Hina. Laura, do you would like to add anything about this additive effect between radon and tobacco? Uh, yes, so I, I totally agree with Hina. This is not only a thing of non-smokers, because sometimes radon seems to be only related to non-smokers. It's a relevant risk factor for smokers. And this synergistic effect, it is not only additive, it's closer to be multiplicative because one of the hypotheses is that they have radon and smoking common pathways in the early steps of lung carcinogenesis. So they promote their cells, the effect and the damage of the other risk factor. So this is really well known from the epidemiological point of view. But in research, in cancer research, with the genomic alteration, we need a lot to do. Thank you to the two of you. So as we move deeper in the conversation about radon, is there a genomic fingerprint of radon-induced lung cancer? Comparison, you know, comparing genomic alterations and lung cancer from high and low radon zones. Kina, you shared the data presented at the CARES Symposium and ASCO. Can you share that data with us, or some of the high-level data? So, you know, over the past decade, there have been several studies that have looked in clinical and preclinical models of the, you know, the, the biology of these radon-induced lung cancers. And, you know, several mutations or hotspots have been linked. There has been talk about EGFR, possibly, P53, uh, some foci on P53 gene, and then, you know, absence of GSTM1, GST11 mutations, but there's really not been any consensus. And I think the challenge has been that we've been studying radon mostly in the general population and not particularly in the cancer population. So in our study, we looked at about 17,000 non-small cell lung cancer patients who had undergone next-gen sequencing testing from 2015 to 2020. And based on the EPA maps, we divided our population into patients residing in high radon zones and low radon zones, above four picocurie per liter and below four picocurie per liter. And we found about 2,099 patients in the high radon zone and 4,751 patients in the low radon zone. And some of the interesting findings, I think, you know, just understanding more about the clinical genomic and biological features of these cancers, we did notice that there was a significantly younger population in the high radon exposed areas. The median age was 68, whereas it was 70 in the the low radon population. The high radon zones incidentally also had a lot more smokers compared to the low radon zone. And we saw slightly more predominant squamous histology when compared to low radon. Overall in the cohorts, adenocarcinoma was, was, um, you know, obviously the 
predominant histology, but slightly more squamous compared to the, the low radon. And the, the, the significant genomic features, our aim for the study was to really find a genomic imprint or a signature to be able to say that this patient had significant radon exposure. Because as we mentioned, a lot of times patients don't know and providers may not know that this, they have been exposed. What we found in our study was we found three particular mutations were frequently altered or mutated in the patients belonging to high radon zones, NFE2L2, which is a gene that regulates expression of antioxidant proteins that protect against oxidative damage triggered by injury and inflammation. So NFE2L2 mutations were much more frequent in lung cancers from high radon zone. Additionally, P53 mutations were also very frequent in lung cancers from high radon zones. And the third gene that we noticed was the SMARC-A4 mutation, which was also more frequent in high radon zones. We also had several other genes that had trends toward being more frequent, like CDKN2A, SMARC-A4, KMTT2D, DNMT3A, but particularly the three mutations that stood out were NFE2L2, P53, and SMARC-A4. And this sort of brought up questions about what specifically is happening at the molecular level. There's DNA repair happening, there's oxidative injury, and you know perhaps these mutations are predisposing these already exposed, these patients who are exposed to a radon to developing lung cancer. And that brought up an interesting idea about looking at pathways, at you know, particular carcinogenic pathways that may lead or that may be able to help us link radon with lung cancer. And you know, we divided those 700 mutations that we tested these patients for into several different pathways. And the, the few pathways that really stood out with much more significant alterations were the chromatin remodeling pathway, the KEEP1 NRF2 pathway, P53 pathway, the cell cycle pathway, and the DNA repair mutation pathway. So these five pathways significantly had more frequent alterations in the high radon exposed tumors compared to the low radon exposed tumors. And, you know, to that effect, we also saw the tumor mutation burden in the patients in the tumors that were exposed to or patients that lived in high radon zones, their tumors had significantly higher median tumor mutation burden. So these patients were clearly having more radon-induced insult to their genomic structure. And I think that sort of really brought up a lot of exciting questions and directions. And we're continuing to look into that data and we'll be soon uh, bringing out our updated analysis in the next few months. Thank you, Hina. I'm learning so much for all of you. And I think we are going to running out of time. So, Lara, have you seen any differences in the clinical characteristics of lung cancer associated with radon exposure? Well, in the classical studies, the epidemiological studies, uh, radon has been associated with all types of lung cancer. So initially in minors with small cell lung cancer, then with squamous cell lung cancer, later with adenocarcinoma, particularly in non-smokers. However, the deeper clinical and molecular profiling of these tumors remains unknown. And Hina and me, we are working on this. So it's important to know that today there is no lung cancer profile associated with radon. So we need the oncologist. We need to improve this information because we have the access 
to all the data, the clinical, the molecular data, and the pathological data, not common for the epidemiologists. So we can enrich a lot the molecular epidemiology research area in radon, but also in other areas from other carcinogens. Thank you for sharing that with us. As we continue to move forward with the conversation, I really want to ask about understanding the challenges about, you know, radon at home. And we talk about people being able to measure the radon levels at home. Something that worries me is that there may be disparities and associations with social determinants of health when it comes to radon exposure. And I'm going to explain this in a little bit of context for our audience. Vulnerable populations are most likely to live in government-supported housing. And, you know, it is not clear how often radon is checked in these houses, apartments. So, Hina, this is very particularly to the United States with this government-supported housing. What are some of the challenges related to radon exposure in vulnerable populations? That's an excellent point, uh, Narges, that you brought up. And, you know, the radon mitigation system, if someone is found to have high radons inside their homes, the mitigation system itself costs anywhere between 1500 to 2500 So it can be clearly a financial barrier. And not to mention that the testing, it has to be performed by the individual himself or herself and not by the state. The state does have guidelines and support and recommendations on where to get testing and who, how to do it. But, you know, it has to, the, eventually the responsibility falls on the person. And to look into this, you know, you brought up a great point about housing and the people living in all this socioeconomic and financial barriers that could exist. There was a, an, a very neat study done in Minnesota, which is considered a high radon state, and they compared, they compared an area with high radon levels, and they compared patients who had low rates of radon mitigation systems installed, and they compared the houses that had high radon mitigation rates. So compared the two... And they found three major factors were play, coming into play in this population. The household poverty rates were three times higher in patients, in people living in areas of low mitigation rates. So clearly, you know, living below the poverty line was directly related with lower chances of testing and mitigating your radon levels. The percentage of rental housing was much higher in areas that had low mitigation rates. So, you know, 45% of people were living in rental housing in areas that had low mitigation rates and compared to high mitigation rates where only 17% were living in, in rentals. And the other thing was the home values were much lower in the low mitigation rates. So there's clearly that financial aspect that brings in, but it also another barrier that I think exists, and that's something that we're starting to learn more, is the ethnic and, and diversities that exist and, and how these have affected Redon exposures. In a study performed in North Carolina, it was published in 2019, they looked at uh, patients of uh, people of different ethnic backgrounds and racial backgrounds, and they saw that less Hispanics and African Americans had a knowledge of radon gas compared to their white counterparts in the community. Similarly, again, renters and people living below the poverty line in North Carolina as well were seen to have lower, uh, less percentage of these people had knowledge about the fact that radon is a harmful gas and that the fact that it should be tested and possibly mitigated. So I think, you know, there are several barriers that really come into play in a population-based standpoint. And not only are policies, you know, important state by state that should be stay uniform, but also the support and, 
and the amount of advocacy that's required in, in awareness. Thank you so much, Hina. Lara, about what do you have seen that some inciting research, some new data regarding radon and lung cancer? So radon research is another area for cancer research for the oncologist, but this, this involves multidisciplinary teams of several scientists that have been working on radon research for several years, the physicists, biologists, the epidemiologists. And in Europe, we are currently working in the Radonorm Consortium. It's an European consortium funded by the European Commission with 56 centers participating in 22 countries that will increase the scientific knowledge about radon. So in my center, Hospital Clinic, together with Gustave Roussy and my mentor, Benjamin Bess, we are leading one task of this consortium about lung cancer and endoradon. And particularly as we are working in three different studies, one preclinical court in rats with lung cancer induced by radon, where we try to characterize the lung cancer in different courts, this preclinical court, also an occupational court from the uranium miners from Germany that Hina said before. And also, and we are really happy because it's open since April 2022, the EORTC Lung Cancer Group, the study Bioradon, which is a prospective court of, it's a large court of 1,000 uh, patients with non-small cell lung cancer, where we will study the impact of radon with a special focus on the molecular profile to evaluate if the radon can, if we can identify lung cancer profile associated with radon, the vulnerable population associated with an increase of risk of radon, and also to evaluate the radon in the context with other carcinogens. Thank you, Lara. As we wrap up this podcast, I've learned so much from the two of you, and I wish we could talk for longer. We would like to get to know you better and know what motivates you to pursue a career in thoracic oncology and to study this very, as Lara mentioned, understudy risk factor for lung cancer. So I will start, Hina. What, what prompted you to do a career in thoracic oncology and study radon? So you know, treatment options in lung cancer patients have absolutely blossomed over the past decade. And I think a lot of that comes from our understanding of you know, the biology and the immunology of lung cancer. And there have been so many novel ways to treat our lung cancer patients, whether it's immunotherapy-based combination options or new driver mutations being discovered and therapies to target those drivers. So it's just great to be able to tell your patients that, hey, don't give up hope. The treatment options for lung cancer today are so much better than they were a few years ago, and the future looks more and more promising with each passing day. There have been over a dozen new targeted therapies discovered in lung cancer only in the past five years. So it's really just an exciting time for thoracic oncology. And like I mentioned, the emphasis is on understanding the biology of each of these disease subtypes. And similarly with the radon, you know, we, we understand how big of a burden this is on the lung cancer mortality with, as Laura mentioned, as, as high as 9 to 10% of lung cancer deaths attributable to radon. But the only way we can really try to decrease that risk is by understanding from a biological perspective more about these radon-induced lung cancers. So we can really continue to make an integrated effort for individual lung cancer patients and reduce their risk of exposures. Lara? 
what motivated you to pursue this research in lung cancer in Rada? Mm, I believe because I'm a curious person. I was always interested in the role of carcinogens in the development of cancer. And in my first position after the residency, I met my mentor, my first mentor in thoracic oncology, the Dr. Belen Rubio. She made me fall in love with the thoracic oncology with all these new therapies emerging. But was years later when I met a patient, a really smart patient who spoke to me for the first time about endoradon. Since then, I've been working on this research. And this is amazing because we are oncologists. So on one side, I'm oncologist treating my patients, but in parallel, we perform research with impact on lung cancer prevention. And this is really nice for us. Thank you for sharing that with us, Lara. I think many of us have that in common, that patient that we met, that, you know, changed our career pathway, that kind of motivated us to do research. So uh, we're coming to the end of this wonderful conversation. I appreciate the time and the passion of our guests, Drs. Hina Khan and Dr. Laura Mesquita. Thank you for your time, and we look forward to continue learning for you and see you in person soon. Thank you very much, Narjust. It was great to participate in this discussion. Thank you. Thanks to everyone. I hope you have learned as much as I did. Uh, don't forget to listen to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. And I hope that you tune in the first and the third weeks of every month to give us a listen. Have a wonderful time. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 